From time to time, during the How Did We Miss That podcast, we may talk about details of crimes that some may find triggering or disturbing. Listener discretion is highly advised. Welcome back to another episode of How Did We Miss That? I'm Christine. And I'm John. And I just want to say welcome. We've gotten a bunch of international listeners. Yeah, thank you, week. India. Amazing. I think it's really cool. So I just wanted to say welcome. We're super excited. Our downloads are like exploding through the roof. People, yes. are, people are liking our show. Yeah. So today was like 100 downloads, which is huge for us small-time podcasters. <laughs> so thank you so much to whoever's sharing and listening or whatever keep up the good word and keep spreading the good word yeah good absolutely stuff. so thank you and if you haven't yet please please give a review if you don't feel like doing a review just do a rating we'd love it yep on your favorite podcast app it doesn't matter yes wherever you listen so today i have a pretty good story for you at least i think it's a good story i was interested in it when i first heard about it and um, this is actually coming as a suggestion from our one of our listeners, Liz. So, Liz, if you're out there, thank you so much for turning me on to the story. It really interested me as soon as I heard about it. So, um, I am going to be doing the Lost Boys of Bucks County today. So, my sources for this story are Wikipedia, of course, because where would we be without Wikipedia? Um, a Philadelphia Magazine article by Ralph Cipriano from February of this year. And um, Fight or Fright podcast. There was actually a really good episode on it. I got a lot of a lot of good information. And you can find them on Facebook and Instagram at Fight or Fright Pod. Just want to give a shout out. It was a really good episode. So yeah, check awesome. it out That's if you a, want a little bit more information. It's a cool name. I like it. Yeah. So between July 5th and July 7th of 2017, four young men were reported missing in Bucks County, Pennsylvania. So it's kind of close to home, which I liked. Well, close to our home now here. Though searches tried to find the young men quickly, they were all found murdered. Dean Finacciaro, age 19, Thomas Mayo, age 21, Jimmy Patrick, age 19, and Mark Sturgis, age 22, were all murdered in three separate incidents, all within two days of each other. Wow, crazy. Yeah. So that's kind of what I was like, oh my gosh, like yeah. what's going on with the story? Yeah. So basically, beginning on July 5th of 2017, Patrick was the first to vanish. This was the Jimmy Patrick, age 19. Okay. And it's weird because okay. he's got two first names, so I just want to <laughs> make sure I explain that. Then two days later on July 7th, Mayo, Finacciaro, and Sturgis were all reported missing. They were each found murdered the same day they went missing. Hmm. So search efforts obviously found them pretty quickly. Yeah, that never happens, right? So let's talk about the victims in order of their disappearances. Jimmy Patrick was a sophomore majoring in business at Loyola University in Maryland, and he was last seen around 6 p.m. on July 5th in Newtown, Pennsylvania. He failed to show up for work the next day, which kind of alerted people to there was an issue. Um, he had attended Holy Ghost Prep, but was known for selling weed to the students at school. Jimmy had an innocent face, but he'd been kicked out of high school. Photos found on his phone showed guns and drugs. And there was also a video of Jimmy snorting a white substance. 
on the July night that Jimmy disappeared, he told his grandmother, whom he was being raised by, that he was going out to get something to eat and wouldn't be long. Texts at 2 a.m. show his grandmother asking, Jimmy, where are you? Jimmy, where are you? I know. That like gave me chills when I read it at first. The next victim, Dean Finacciaro, was last seen around 6.30 p.m. on July 7th, being picked up by an unidentified person. And his remains were found on July 12th, 2017, in a common grave in a Solbury Township farm. This farm would be found to belong to the killer, but we'll get into that later. I love how the um, things, in, and this is in Louisiana as well, I love the word township. I wish more places called their things township. Township. Yeah, it's yeah. cool. It's kind of old worldy and uh, sounds so much better than city. Yeah, you know, I like it. Yeah. I do like town better than city. Is there a difference? I don't know. Oh yeah, yeah. Do you have to be something to be a township? I don't even know. I don't know about township. I think is just language. But to be a town like where we live, there's no like municipal services. There's no right. mayor. There's like an administrator like we have. No trash. All that stuff. You know. So yeah. that's what designates town versus city. I think for the most part. Mm. I was today years old. Hey, well there you go. <laughs> Learn something new every day. How did you miss that? How did I miss it? Along with the remains of Mark Sturgis and Thomas Mayo, um, his body was found, like I said, in this grave. Finacciaro's body was the first to be identified. According to text messages found on his phone, Dean was another troubled young man. Dean's friends told the cops that Dean bought and sold drugs. He also struggled with depression and had checked into a mental health facility as an inpatient. Family members had been concerned about Dean's use of drugs for a long time. Next, we had Mark Sturgis, um, he actually went to meet a friend, Thomas Mayo, at around 6 p.m. on July 7th. Both men worked for Sturgis's father's construction company. The two did not show up for work, and calls to their cell phones were, went directly to voicemail. Tom had dropped out of East Stroudsburg University. Friends told police that Tom sold large quantities of marijuana. That night, Tom brought along Mark, described by his mother as a teddy bear, who looked and clowned around like his favorite actor, Jack Black. So these young men were obviously troubled, but, um, you know, that's not a reason to kill them just because they sold drugs or maybe they had some mental health issues. It's obviously not the reason they should be murdered. They had families and people that loved them and they weren't allowed to live out their lives. So, I mean, I, I kind of hated to do this part because it makes the victims seem like bad kids, bad seeds. But, you know, like I said, it's not a reason to kill them. No, I, but I think. I think you're okay telling that story because it's important, obviously, but also all, I mean, not all kids, hopefully our kids and not when we were kids, we didn't do these things, but a lot of kids nowadays would probably have this similar record of nefarious things that they've done or tried. So I don't think it's that bad. It doesn't paint that bad of a picture. Right. So luckily things with an investigation went pretty quickly. On the afternoon of July 8th, authorities were able to track Finacciaro's cell phone to a farm in Solbury Township. So remember that farm that I mentioned? I do. This is where it's finally going to come out in the story. The farm was owned by Antonio and Sandra DiNardo, who also owned a cement and construction company. On July 12th, Cosmo DiNardo, their son, was arrested and charged for stealing and attempting to sell a car that belonged to Thomas Mayo. So he was one of the victims right? for $500. Yeah. Suspicion was also raised by the fact that Mayo left his insulin in the car, which was something his family said he was, he wouldn't do that. It's extremely unusual yeah, exactly. for him to leave his insulin. Yeah. The next day, DiNardo confessed to the murders. In exchange for his confession, prosecutors stated that they would not seek the death penalty. 
In his confession, he said he did all of this because he felt cheated during their drug transactions. So remember I told you that mm. all of these boys were into drugs. They were selling drugs. They were taking drugs. Yeah. Um, but so not, that's kind of where all of this came about. Right. But not really hard drugs. I mean, marijuana. No. Right. right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. As news reports quickly spread about four young men missing in Bucks County, pings off of cell phone towers led police to Dean Finacciaro's phone, which was still on and found on the Gennardo's farm. So that's what led them to Cosmo and his parents' farm was Dean's phone was still on. The police also discovered Tom Mayo's abandoned car parked on a neighboring property. So he was trying to sell it at that point. Hundreds of volunteers, police officers and FBI agents as well as cadaver dogs and a helicopter searched the property. After several days, authorities finally unearthed a grave site containing the remains of Dean Finacciaro, Tom Mayo, and Mark Sturgis. So remember, we have four boys that were missing. Yeah, but They've they found They've now found three. three. All together, like in the same hole? Or yeah. when you say grave site, like a different plots? It was a common grave. A so common all grave. three of okay. them were stuffed into one. Gotcha. One spot. Um, when Sandra and Tony DiNardo repeatedly asked their son why police were searching their farm, he kept saying he had no idea. But then after everything going on, when they find the bodies, he finally decided to come clean. During a videotaped confession, DiNardo told police that he killed Jimmy Patrick, his first victim, in self-defense because he saw a Glock in Jimmy's backpack and was sure that he was going to kill him. So he shot him in the back of the head twice before he could so it's a little paranoia going on here, I think. Yeah, but that, um, well, that's not self-defense. That would never hold up. Just because you see someone with a gun, they have to actually threaten you with it to kill in self-defense. Exactly. <laughs> well, and the fact anything. that it's the back of his head, he was obviously right, yeah. not charging or exactly. anything of that yeah. nature. So he used a twenty-two rifle, and then he buried the corpse in a grave that he dug with a backhoe that was used for his family's business. Cosmo had offered to sell 19-year-old Jimmy Patrick $8,000 of marijuana? That Which seems like, like a lot. Where are you? Yeah. Um, it was, I mean, it was four pounds worth. Um, the 22 rifle and the buried corpse. And the, Cosmo had offered to sell 19-year-old Jimmy Patrick $8,000 of marijuana, which, I mean, it sounds like a lot. It's four pounds of marijuana. I mean, that's a ton, right? I, think. I, I mean, I'm not big on the marijuana market because I've never done it or sold it or bought it or anything right. like that. But yeah, four pounds of like... Four pounds of apples is a lot. So I think four <laughs> pounds of marijuana would be right. I think a that would lot. be quite a lot. I, I want to know where he has eight thousand dollars to spend on marijuana. Yeah, it's exactly. interesting. Yeah. So eventually, he buried the twenty-two rifle with the corpse in the grave that he dug with the backhoe that I told you about. The rifle, police said, was reported stolen a year or two earlier from North Carolina. When police interviewed Cosmo's parents, the Donardo said they had no idea how either that gun or another gun he used had ended up in Cosmo's hands. Interesting, yeah. Well, why would they know that, right? Right. Two nights later, the day after a visit to his psychiatrist, which I'm going to talk to you about in a little bit yeah. later, Cosmo picked up Sean Kratz, his 20-year-old cousin, in his truck. They purchased three five-gallon gas cans at Home Depot and a 13 and a half gallons of gas as well at a gas station, which isn't too odd for them. They were big into ATVs. So, I mean, it's not that strange for them to do something like this, but... You'll find out why in a, in a hot second here. I thought that was actually strange for like homes, Homeland Security purposes, but maybe just the gas cans and the gas, not so much. If had they got some manure and other things to make bombs, maybe. Right. But. Well, and I think the 
the town that he lived in obviously know him. They know he rides ATVs. They know he's, you know, that's something he does. So it might not have seemed so strange at that point. Just like our little small town here, if you're living in something called a township, I think it's the same vibe. Like they're not expecting or suspecting any of that stuff going on. Right. Gotcha. Okay. The pair lured two more young men to the Donardo's farm, also under the pretense of selling the marijuana. But 19-year-old Dean Finacciaro and 21-year-old Tom Mayo, who brought along a friend, 22-year-old Mark Sturgis, had no idea they were walking into an ambush. Donardo met with Sturgis and Mayo at a church to sell Mayo marijuana. Mayo and Sturgis were both shot as they exited their truck. Cosmo told police that Sean shot Dean in the back of the head several times with his mother's 357. After Dean was down, Cosmo finished the job by shooting him one or two more times in the back of the head. Cosmo shot Tom Mayo, his third victim, in the spine, paralyzing him. Did he shoot them with the 357 mm-hmm. in the back of the head? So yeah. if that's a 357 Magnum, that's gonna that's like a dirty hairy gun. Oh god, that'll blow your like. <laughs> A huge, massive hole. So there must not have been much left of the head. I'm assuming. I mean, it doesn't say too much about the bodies once they were found, but we'll get into that. But that will obliterate your head from close range. Right. Well, so Tom, I just told you about, he was shot in the spine. So he, I'm sure, was paralyzed instantly. Um, Mark Sturgis, the fourth and last victim, tried to run away, but Cosmo shot him too. And then he ran out of ammo at that point. Because Tom was still screaming... Cosmo told the cops that he's screaming that he can't feel his legs. He decided to hop onto the backhoe and run over Tom, crushing him to get him to stop screaming. Gross. Yeah. Yeah. In his confession, Cosmo said he used the backhoe to pick up the bodies and dump them in a pig roaster. In his confession, Cosmo said he used the backhoe to pick up the bodies and dump them into a pig roaster that the family had on their farm. What's a pig roaster? Is that like the uh, oven, like the... Like the right. Hawaiians do? Exactly. Okay. Um, and in another article that I read, uh, it sounds like the family took like old gasoline cans and cleaned them out and made them these pig roasters. Oh, yeah. Like a, yeah, that's very yeah. popular to make a barbecue out of like right. a 50-gallon drum. Okay. Exactly. Gotcha. So he just shoved the bodies into one of those. Then he doused them with gasoline and set them on fire. And had them for snack later. Well, yeah. <laughs> While the corpses were still smoldering, Cosmo and Sean went out for cheesesteaks. As like you, do. you do. Yeah, right? this is Pennsylvania after all. Absolutely. A celebratory cheesesteak. But Cosmo did tell police that he couldn't eat his because of what he had just done. It affected his appetite. So he wasn't able to eat his cheesesteak. I feel so sad. Fun fact, by the way, in Ma- Massachusetts and Boston, it's called a steak and cheese. A steak and cheese? But over there, cheese steak. Just Got in it. case anyone ever wanted to know so you don't look like an idiot ordering one of those here on the eastern side of the country. I like it. Yeah. Okay. Carry on. I'll have to remember that. Yeah completely irrelevant but just in case you needed to know <laughs> just just for kicks right yep. that night after all three victims had been killed cosmo and sean showed up at the Donardo house seemingly in good spirits they told sandra cosmo's mom they'd been out riding atvs and then the two men just went to sleep hmm. sounds like they are just you know sleeping like babies yeah well those cheesesteaks do fill you up well remember cosmo didn't eat his cheesesteak it's a pretty heavy meal but he didn't eat it. Okay, I gotcha. Yeah. <laughs> Cosmo told the cops that the day after the triple murder, he and Sean returned to the farm to finish the job. Cosmo used the backhoe to dig a 12-foot deep common grave for the three victims. In May of 2018, Cosmo pleaded guilty to four counts of first-degree murder and related charges that included robbery, conspiracy, and abuse of a corpse. 
To escape the death penalty, he had agreed to show police where he'd buried Jimmy Patrick's body on the farm, a half mile from the common grave where he'd buried the other three victims. So remember I told you they were able to find three bodies in that grave? Well, in order to avoid the death penalty, he brought them to Jimmy's body, which was in a different place. So can I pause for one moment on your story? Yeah. I have a question for you. And since you're the crime maven of this show, maybe you know the answer to this. And my story is going to talk a little bit about this as well. But why do people give themselves up or give information to avoid the death penalty when the alternative, which we'll hear about in my case later, is like 99 years in prison? You're going to die in prison I, I'd rather get it over with quickly or are they hoping there'll be parole somewhere along the way? Yeah. Maybe they're like, hoping to be it. paroled at some point. Um, I mean, cause you never know what the judge is actually going to sentence you to. Right. You can assume that you'll probably get life, but you don't know. Yeah. Um, I, I think it's, I think it's purely a psychological thing. Some I, people I, are I just guess, like, I, mean, I don't want to die. I just wouldn't I mean, want to die in prison away from know, family and you. possibly get, get a shiv to the neck or whatever. I mean, like, I just, if I'm guilty and, and I know I did it, let's get it over with. You know, I don't know. I just found that interesting because a lot of people do that. Yeah, I don't know. That would be something to to look into. Maybe death penalty means something else than we, we think it means is death row. Like, I would think it would be worse than just regular prison. Yeah, I'm, well, is that, it that is true. That is know. true that there's like a long, like you have to wait a long time on death row. So it's not like you get the death penalty and then tomorrow you're dead. Right. So that's a okay, super long gotcha. time. It takes a long time to get. Yeah, that might have something to do with it. Okay. And I, I'm I assuming see. if you have the death penalty, there's just absolutely zero chance of appeal. And right. There will be no. I mean, I would think. I don't know. Like yeah. That's a really good question. Something okay. to research. Yeah. The judge who sentenced Cosmo to four consecutive life terms noted that during his confession, Cosmo had shown him that, quote, human lives are disposable. They have no value. Um, this is an interesting fact that I saw in a different article that I read. I'm, I'm quoting, not quoting, but I'm using a lot from the Philadelphia Magazine article that I read. But this one was from a different one. It says that while being investigated for the four murders in July 2017, Donardo also claimed to be responsible for at least two other killings in the previous five years in Philadelphia. Wow. And it says investigators had yet to verify these claims, so they hmm. haven't been able to find out whether it's true or not. Um, at least at the point of this article, which was February of, oh, well, this article's different, but yeah, yeah, I thought that was strange. I'd like to know more about that. Yeah. No kidding. That, that's another thing. Why, why do that? If you got away with it, nobody even knows it existed. Why are we even, why bringing that up? Well, I think we're going to, I'm going to tell you right now a little bit more about Cosmo. I think he's actually quite upset that he did these things. Um, I, I don't think he really wanted to, if that makes sense. Like it wasn't a premeditated, I want to kill someone kind of a thing. Were they more opportunity crimes or was he like possessed no. by so the devil or what? <laughs> You're going to tell us, right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you okay. right now. So let's let's hear a little bit more about Cosmo I was just here. setting you up. I was right. like, I like in volleyball that. when they boink, and right. then you spike it. it home, baby. I love it. All well, right. Here comes the spike. Here it comes. Cosmo had been suffering from mental illness. In fact, the middle of this murder rampage, like I told you, Cosmo had had an appointment to see his psychiatrist. So right in the middle of all of this going on, he has a visit to a psychiatrist. The psychiatrist's name is Christian Kohler, who specialized in evaluating and treating young people dealing with an initial onset of mental illness. He had been seeing Cosmo for almost a year and was treating him for bipolar disorder, schizoaffective disorder, and schizophrenia. 
So these are some like heavy hitters that yeah, this, that's a lot. this kid's dealing with right here. And all of them at once? That's nuts. Yeah. Um, he'd had him committed to a mental hospital at one point, but obviously he was released and was being treated with antipsychotic medication. The previous year had been really tough for Cosmo, who had been behaving violently, going in and out of psychiatric facilities, and his parents were living in constant fear of another violent psychotic episode. In these episodes, Cosmo, amped up with manic superpower strength, would suddenly attack someone in the family and just be really hard to control. I mean, he's a big kid. Yeah. He, if he gets out of control, there's no bringing him back. Right, right. But Kohler and Sandra both felt like the situation was improving. A month earlier, Kohler had declared that Cosmo's bipolar disorder was in full remission and he'd actually reduced his medication. So it's okay. just a month before all this happened. Yeah. In fact, the day that he saw him, like I told you, right in between all of this going on, he completely stopped Cosmo's medication. Hmm. Told him, like, stop it. You're doing great. Yeah. He obviously had no idea that co- what Cosmo had already done. Just a day earlier, he had <laughs> yeah. already shot and killed Jimmy Patrick, and he was just getting started. Even as he sat in the waiting room that day, Cosmo used his iPad to Google the soup maker cartel. So while he's waiting in the waiting room, he's using his iPad to Google the soup maker cartel, which, I, you know, the <laughs> name cartel banding. already, right. Yeah. Cartel already like sends shivers down my spine. It's a not something you want to get involved in. But basically, the soup maker cartel is a Mexican drug syndicate that's known for making soup <laughs> out of its victims by putting them in a barrel and covering them with acid a whole new meaning to albondigas <laughs> right that's um, disgusting we saw that yeah. on breaking bad and that's pretty disgusting but i mean it's it, that is definitely an organized crime thing because it's the best way to get rid of a body right well they're responsible for what they believe to be over 300 murders in this particularly gruesome way Ugh, that's so gross he's in the waiting room at his psychiatrist's office we may have to Googling do a little disclaimer on this things. for all the soup lover listeners we have out there because this might ruin them forever <laughs> from eating any kind of Mexican soup. Maybe. So we may want to hey skip ahead from this time to this time in case you're sensitive to this kind of thing. Exactly. Interesting. So I don't know. I'm reading the story and this is like frightening to me that this is all happening and it seems like everything's great. And like, let's just take you off your meds. Like super frightening. Yeah. His mindset, too, was just, it's, I don't know. But the psychiatrist seemed unaware that he was dealing with, like, a complete time bomb at this point in time. Right. In his notes, Kohler wrote that his patient posed no clear risk to self or others. (laughs) So Cosmo walked out of Kohler's office and drove home with his mom. Before Cosmo became a killer, his parents, Tony and Sandra, say they saw him as a model son He was a straight A student and very dependable. They said he was a hardworking employee in his family's business. He graduated from Holy Ghost Prep and won a scholarship to Arcadia University, and he wanted to be an orthodontist. He played football for a very long time and was involved in it all through his high school career. The parents, you you know, when bad things happen, you always want to point fingers at people, right? Right, yeah. So the parents are really quick to point the finger at Kohler, stating that his negligence completely missed what was going on with their son. And friends and family members remember him as always being willing to lend a hand, being very polite and courteous. So they kind of start pointing the fingers at the Donardos. So you know? just a quick note on Kohler right. and, and that negligence claim. 
some of these guys are really good at hiding their true Absolutely. self. And I mean, a, a doctor's not a miracle worker. Like, what's he supposed to do if he doesn't pick up on anything because the guy's acting really well in the sessions? It's like, how am right. I supposed to, how am I negligent because this person hid everything from me? I know. I I'm can't sure there's make up a diagnosis. You right. Know? I'm sure there's other things that we don't know that maybe he did miss things. I don't know. Um, it's the same with the other people that are pointing the finger at the Donardos, saying like it's your fault, it's your negligence. They don't know what's going on in the house. Yeah. You know, they don't know what's yeah. happening. Right. The people say they were functioning as enablers by providing their son with access to all the tools he needed to commit these vicious crimes, including the 357, the backhoe, and the pig roaster. But I'm thinking to myself, we got a barbecue outside. Am I like enabling my son to become a cannibal and barbecue people? Like, no. It's they have a backhoe for their business. They have pig roasters because I mean, come on, who doesn't love roast pig? Right. If they're holding a session of, hey, this is how you can kill someone with our backhoe in addition to digging holes. And when you're done, roast them on the pig roaster. That's different. But these are all just tools of the house. Right. And and I mean, Sandra had mentioned that they had the 357, but she had no idea that he had gotten a hold of it. I'd be interesting to know why they had that. I mean. Yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, as a gun owner, like I, I don't, people have guns just for various reasons, but you legally have to keep them locked up and things like that. So, I mean, yes, they have the gun, but you have to keep it locked up in a way. So if they didn't do that, then I guess that could be the only thing that they could be held responsible for in this particular case or providing him the tools. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. I doubt they just handed it to him and said, here, son, use this to blow up a head. Right. Well, and then there's that gun that was stolen from North Carolina. Like, how did he even get that? Yeah. So I I think people just, they look for something, someone to blame when something goes wrong. I mean, it's... Of course, that's natural human behavior. like Olaf says, trying to control things when things feel out of control. Yes. (laughs) True crime and Olaf quotes. True crime now that's a and Frozen. There <laughs> we go. Sandra says Cosmo's issues began sometime in 2015. He'd broken up with his girlfriend and a plan to become a naval, Navy SEAL had not worked out. That doesn't work out for most people. That's a tough gig. It's a, yeah, it's rough. Yeah, should have seen that one coming. Right. In February 2016, he was diagnosed with major depressive disorder. And he didn't complete the second semester of his freshman year at Arcadia University. So remember, he had won a scholarship. Yeah. Ended up not being able to complete that. I mean, I think that would probably send me into even more depression after, you know, already being diagnosed with major depressive disorder. Yeah. And the girlfriend thing and all that just all starting to pile up. Yeah. Yeah. That spring, his problems only grew worse. He was involved in an ATV accident where he was pinned under the vehicle for hours. In addition to head injuries, he suffered compound leg fractures and wound up in a wheelchair with a cast that ran from his hip to his toe. Oh, boy. A month after his ATV accident, his parents say Cosmo began to act bizarrely. He became physically aggressive and paranoid. So Mm -hmm. I just want to stop there for just a minute. I don't know if you remember me saying earlier that he had played football. I do recall. Yes. My little brain is like pinging away, thinking to myself, don't concussions have something to do with this? Like head injuries. And there was this, oh gosh, what was his name? Are you being rhetorical or would you like me to take everyone no, to school here? go on for it. Oh, please football do. Football related head injuries. Please do. But I just wanted to really quickly, there's a doctor and I don't remember what his name is, but I did some studies. He did 
tests on the frontal lobe, which is where like a lot of our impulse control comes from, and found that injuries to the frontal lobe, like blunt force trauma, things like that, cause just complete mood changes and aggression in people. Yes. So here's the thing about football. Is it okay if we take a quick sidebar? Absolutely. Do it. So I think most people are familiar with the professional football player that played with the Patriots, Aaron Hernandez, who was convicted of murder and then ultimately killed himself while in prison. Everything after all that came to light has pointed to CTE, which is traumatic brain injury due to concussion. And so there's been several cases throughout the NFL of former players retired killing themselves. And some of them have even gone so far to kill themselves without damaging their brain. So not a shot to the head, but some other method hanging themselves shot to the heart, whatever. So their brain can be donated for the study because they believe that that's what caused them to do these things, these depression, anger, all these things post playing. So I think you're exactly right there. It's a, it's a serious thing. I mean, there's a lot of things that that Aaron Hernandez guy was involved in, but there's a great documentary that was on Netflix that goes into all this other stuff that absolutely points to brain injury. Yeah. So I just found it really interesting. I mean, I read two, well, I I read three articles. I didn't really take much from one of the articles because it had already had everything that I already had before. There was nothing new. So I didn't quote that one, but of the three articles I read, um, the podcast, she did a good job of kind of mentioning it a little bit, but nobody talked about this maybe being a correlation. And I'm thinking to myself, how could you not have even investigated this just a little bit further? Well, it's not popular to talk about yeah, because America loves its football and these poor guys out there putting themselves and their brain on the line from a very young age. A lot of football starts at four years old, all through high school, everything dealing with these concussions and they just get shot up with painkillers to continue playing, to continue to perform. And I mean, some players have retired at a very young age saying, I'm not going to put my brain through this anymore. And they've come and spoken out about it. And the NFL's done a lot to try to like improve player safety. But I'm a believer. And listen, I love football like the next guy. But there's something there for sure. Well, even if it wasn't the football injuries, maybe he didn't even get hit that hard in football. But this ATV accident, I mean, just had to exacerbate it a a ton. It even could have just been that. I don't know. But I was just really interested in why that wasn't an angle that anybody took well so the from what i understand from like concussion injury is the first one does a little damage not so bad the next one re-injures that and it continues to re-injure so absolutely it could have started with football and then got worse from the atv and triggered it to do just irreparable damage i guess is what i'm trying to say irreparable irreparable yes but yes they don't uh a lot of people like i said are afraid to even go down that road they they automatically think it's something else because well and i I guess in a a case like this i mean these four murders were just horrific right i'm sure it's you know you don't want to like oh but this poor guy you know yeah i mean i'm sure a lot of people don't want to try to give him the benefit of the doubt as as a murderer well it almost so, makes them look like a victim almost like when yeah, you take the psychiatric right. thing so that's another reason they don't want to do it exactly they, they automatically want to paint the picture of this guy as a murderer versus someone who was acting out of their own control yeah 
Well, in response to his aggressiveness and his paranoia, Cosmo's doctors prescribed strong antidepressants, which eventually caused him to gain, gain an alarming amount of weight. He had gained over 100 pounds. And, that that I mean, is alarming. It, it's That's very alarming. <laughs> That's and crazy. It only added to his depression. I mean, can you imagine? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It would be awful. Yeah. That July, Sandra was driving Cosmo to Abington Memorial Hospital to get him to voluntarily admit himself. Mm-hmm. And they never made it. They got into a fight over a cell phone and Cosmo bit Sandra's arm severely and gave her a black eye. Jesus. He was still on crutches because of the ATV accident and he limped out into traffic and attempted to jump into a woman's car, claiming he was trying to escape a kidnapping from his mother, who was a Russian spy and had (laughs) bugged his cast. Okay, that's brain injury right there. Yeah. Yeah. You think? Yeah, a little bit. He was apprehended and wound up in the hospital in handcuffs. The episode was the first of three over a five-month period in 2016 that Cosmo would be institutionalized for mental illness. As he moved in and out of mental health facilities, he became increasingly aggressive and dangerous. It was in November 2016 that Christian Kohler, the Penn psychiatrist I told you about, Mm -hmm. began to treat Cosmo. During his first visit with him... (laughs) He, t- Cosmo told him he had hunted after his dad with an AR-15 oh. because he knew he was being unfaithful to his mother, but he decided not to kill him. Well, okay. That was nice. Yeah. <laughs> in December, Cosmo attacked his father inside the cab of a truck while Tony was driving, prompting him to be committed a third and final time. I mean, these incidents just, they go on and on. I could, I could have pages and pages of these. They describe just so many things that he did that were super scary. Yeah. Can I take another moment? Yeah. So I'm going to just step onto my political soapbox for one second here. There is a serious mental health problem in this country. Absolutely. I mean, like you said, these people just could in and out. That should not be a term. Like you should be in and you should be treated. And if you're going to get out, there should be further treatment. Right. 99% of the homeless problem in California and around this country is due to mental illness because these people get committed for one reason or another and then they just get dumped in the street to do drugs, commit crimes, all these things. I mean, hell, when I worked at Disneyland, they would be dropped off right on Harbor Boulevard and then I had to deal with them yeah. on the property because they didn't know where else to go or what to do. Yeah. Sometimes even in their damn hospital robe. It's insane that they just get dumped out to for space reasons or whatever. So they're... All the all the school shootings, the the active shooter incidents, all that stuff, mental illness, one thousand percent. Yeah, something absolutely. needs to be done about it. All right, I'm done. John <laughs> joins for 2024. I love it. Well, anyway, like I said, there's tons of these incidents. If you really want to know more, you want to hear more about this, it's uh, the Philadelphia Magazine article is really, really in depth about this. A lot of his mental health issues and things. Like I said, if I read all of them to you, we'd be here for a lot longer. So I kind of took out the you know the most important ones that i felt but please read that article if you'd like to i'll link it on our social yeah his mother she attempted to seek help for him 10 different times with 10 different health professionals um she even went to the church to try to help her son and she just couldn't get him the help he needed obviously as you can see there was clearly a larger issue here and i feel like since it all began after his atv accident I think they just need to take a closer look into that and for sure. I mean, obviously it's already over. Yeah. He's already in prison. Yeah. Along with his cousin for the horrific things he did. And they were, they were super horrific. But they should still take a look at it for future potential situations, similar situations, you know? Right. 
The story of Cosmo DiNardo is about a young man's frightening descent into madness in a world of suburban depravity. I love that word, suburban depravity. Yeah. It's about parents that work tirelessly to save their son from severe mental illness, only to see their efforts end in awful tragedy. And then there's the victims that were just innocent byproducts of all these like perfect storm-like collisions. It right. just... yeah. It's super sad. It was a really a really sad story. Well, it would be super sad to find out that they were victims of a because of a traumatic brain injury. I know. Something that I mean, it uh, it sounds like they tried to get him the help he needed, but obviously wasn't enough, you know. Yeah, that's so, really bad. Yeah, that's sad. So that's the story of the Lost Boys of Bucks County and Cosmo Donardo. Gotcha. That's a good one. I like it. Well done. Why thank you. Well, is it my turn? It's your turn. Sorry, that was a long one. I don't think mine is anywhere near as exciting or interesting as yours, but this is your show. so <laughs> It's not my show. And I just want to say, we took a short break in between segments here, and I just checked the downloads 101 for today. Yay! We made Amazing. it. Amazing. Thank you, uh, India, or whoever's listening. Yes, and thank you. Keep doing it. This is awesome. We would love to quit our jobs and podcast for you all. So today I'm going to talk about an old story, but I missed this. And it turns out in my research, I didn't even know much about the purported story of what happened to Martin Luther King Jr. when he was assassinated in 1968. So I'm sure we learned about this in school, but like a lot of history, it gets crammed down your throat and you forget most of it. And you learn as an adult when you watch a documentary or something and a couple years ago on our road trip to Massachusetts, we actually went to the hotel or motel where he was assassinated. It was incredibly moving. It was re- yeah, it was really interesting. A little haunting, kind of cool. But even then, I did not know the history of what I learned through this process. So I will just give a quick recap. And if this gets a little long, I'll just put this out there. We may cut it and do this in two parts because there's a lot of good information that I don't want to Yeah, you miss, want to do it but, justice. But uh, we will try to get through it and, you know, we'll just play it as it goes, right? I love it. All right. So just a quick recap for all of you that may have forgotten history like I did. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated in Memphis, Tennessee at the Lorraine Motel on April 4th, 1968. He was in Memphis where he arrived on March 29th in support of the Black Sanitary Public Works employees who had been on strike since March 12th of that year for higher wages and better treatment. So in some instances, like the white workers were getting paid more to leave early they were getting paid for like 12 hour shifts after only working for four hours and just no way typical mistreatment (laughs) of of black folks back then like you know the typical racism things that that mr king fought for so again not going into too much of the history but he was booked into room 306 at the lorraine motel with fellow activist and mentor ralph abernathy who was right next door in the hotel So King was fatally shot, which we've had been told. Again, I cover the conspiracy part of the show, so you know there's going to be some shocking reveal coming (laughs) here. But we had been told throughout history that he had been shot by James Earl Ray at 6.01 p.m. on April 4th. As he stood on the second floor balcony, just kind of looking out. The bullet entered through his right cheek, smashing his jaw, then traveled down his spinal cord before lodging in his shoulder. Oh, I didn't know that whole path. Yeah, so one bullet did some incredible damage. Yeah. Okay. His friend Abernathy heard the shot from inside the motel room and ran to the balcony to find King on the floor where he held him and held his head. King was rushed to the hospital and after emergency surgery, he died at St. Joseph's Hospital at 7.05 p.m. 
He was 39 years old. Wow. Taken way too soon, right? Yeah, absolutely. So again, that's the history of how he was shot. And like I mentioned, James Earl Ray, and I'm just going to say this right now. It's going to be very hard for me not to say James Earl Jones. (laughs) Because how many other guys out there do you know with James James Earl? Earl? (laughs) And so I don't want to do any disjustice to James Earl Jones and associate him with this (laughs) murder in any way. James Earl Jones did not. (laughs) You know, I'm just not, I'm not that smart and I will do my best. So real quick, let's get into Mr. Ray. Okay. So who is James Earl Ray? Have you heard of him? I mean, just as associated with this. So I I must have been an incredibly bad student. And like I said, there's some parts of history that I just know and some I don't. And I'm a very bad American for not knowing this, but I didn't know the name until I well, I read so about I this. didn't hear it in school. It was from like when we saw the exhibit and stuff. Okay, it was only okay. because of that. It wasn't. Like, well, I mean, I there's other killers out there that we know, like Lee Harvey Oswald and right. Well, supposed killers and John Wilkes Booth, but for some reason, this one I did not hear about. Right, and that's my fault. I suck. So anyway, let's just give a quick recap on him in case there's more people like like me out there. He was born in 1928 and grew up outside St. Louis. His chosen profession was theft and armed robbery. Oh, that's a good choice. Yeah, he's well, it is. He's a criminal um, involved in some kind of just small type of crimes. And when I say small, they don't involve murderers uh, murders of high-profile activists. That's something to keep in mind as we get more into this story. After his third felony conviction in 1959, he was sentenced to 20 years in the Missouri State Penitentiary. So kind of a history of small crimes, serving small sentences here and there. He'd finally done enough, kind of like your three strikes thing, even though that wasn't a thing back then, where they gave him 20 years. That was in 1959. He escaped from prison in 1967. Oh. Successfully, which doesn't happen very often, right? Right. And some believe he had help from prison authorities as part of the opening stanza of this conspiracy that we'll get into. So like the story says that he snuck out on like a bakery truck. Okay. Something that seems incredibly easy, not like tunneling through the thing like in With Shawshank Redemption or <laughs> all those things you would imagine having to jump into the bay from Alcatraz, like Al Capone and all that other stuff, right? Right. This seemed quite easy to just sneak onto a bakery truck that you would think that he should not have access to. Yeah. And was able just to scoot on out with the delivery truck after it left. So that's why conspiracy theorists think that he had, this was an inside job to get him out to eventually okay. be associated with the assassination. So he moved around for a while after escaping prison, staying in Chicago, Los Angeles, Mexico, even Canada. Over the next year, he has claimed that while in Montreal, he met a man named Raul. Raul. Who has had varying physical descriptions over the years. So nobody really knows Raul very much, um, but he'll be important later. Do you know Raul? I don't. I was just going to ask you where he claimed this. Was this like in his testimony or? We'll get into that in a minute. Okay. So, like I said, this was in, while in Montreal, and Raul enlisted him in several small gun running schemes and instructed him to buy a rifle in Birmingham, Alabama. Okay. Okay. So, there's a connection between Raul and the gun, which we will talk about later. Raul and the gun, good band name. That is a good band name. <laughs> On the afternoon of April 4th, Ray checked into a boarding house in Memphis. With a bar called Jim's Grill on the first floor, he paid eight fifty a week to stay. That's $8.50. Wow. Thank you. Not $850. The rear of the boarding house faced the Lorraine Motel across from Mulberry Street. So okay. one would think that he's setting up to do his bidding from that room. It's got line of sight. 
Yeah. All the things you can like watch the, uh, the comings and goings. Right. Kind of like what the Vegas shooter did a couple of years ago. Right. You know? Exactly. King was standing on the balcony of the, of the Lorraine Hotel, like we said, and a single rifle bullet was fired into his lower jaw. So just one shot from a Remington rifle. I don't know anything about rifles, so you'll have to. So we will get into that me. a little bit. So like a shotgun sprays buckshot, or you could shoot a slug and it's one bullet. Accuracy from a distance is questionable. A pistol, no way. You have pistols are close range, so from right across the that. street, not going to happen. So a rifle was used for like hunting, sharpshooting. When he bought this rifle, he bought a scope to go with it. Oh wow! Okay. To make so it makes sense that he's shooting from long range. However, like I mentioned, his history leading up to this is small time crimes, theft, robbery. Y- yeah, it's kind of a big jump. Yeah, there's no history of practicing shooting, going to shooting ranges. You know, we think about the 9-11 hijackers and all the training they did up to it to yeah. prepare for that. Flight training, all those things. You hear about different murderers that, that trained for months and months on how to shoot the weapon well, and it, all these things. None of that. Yeah, well, it's not even just that. There's murderers that, like, they start really slow, like small little tiny things and and eventually work up. It's not like, oh, I'm going to kill a bird and now I've killed five people. Right. Like it doesn't, it's not a huge jump like that. So in all his crimes and his history, from what I could find, nothing having to do with guns or shooting, but yet he's able to kill this man from several yards away right? one shot. Yeah. So keep that in mind as we get further into the conspiracy part of this story. So the rifle we've been talking about was found in the back of the hotel with his fingerprints on it. So there's a lot of facts that put him there that are irrefutable. He bought the rifle. We know that from records. He touched the rifle. Some believe, most people believe that he fired the shot. So much like we talked about last week with Hitler's supposed suicide, there's no other facts except for these that fit that he had anything to do with this. Okay. Now, these are some pretty strong facts. Of course, it's easy to draw conclusions that he's your guy because he got fingerprints on the rifle, rifle at the crime scene, sort of, across the street. But conspiracy theorists, and when I say conspiracy theorists, I mean the King family, all of them, believe that he is innocent and has been working to prove his innocent until now. They're still working, even though he's passed away. So this article that I'm I'm getting this information from is from the Washington Post from 2018. So this is very fresh, and we'll start to get into more of that after hearing the history lesson of James Earl Ray. According to the criminal justice system for the state of Tennessee, Ray fired the shot from the second floor bathroom of the boarding house, then grabbed some belongings and a blanket, stashed the rifle in the blanket, left the building and dropped the bundle in the doorway of a nearby building. Okay. And like I said, all those things had his fingerprints on it. So there's no question that he actually held the rifle and fired the shot. He drove away in a white Mustang. I don't know why it's always white Fords with these people like OJ, (laughs) but he drove away in a white Mustang and went to Atlanta and then Canada and England before being arrested in July of 1968. Wow. So for a couple months, he was on the run, even went overseas. Ray pleaded guilty to the murder of King on March 10th, 1969. He signed a detailed stipulation of facts to the shooting, having had weeks to review it, asking only that the reference to his activities for Wallace be deleted. Now you're probably wondering who Wallace is, right? Yeah, I'm like, what? Did I miss something? <laughs> So rewinding a little bit to 1967, while he was kind of on the run and he lived in all those places, one of them being in Los Angeles, his chief interest while he was out there was George Wallace, 
in his presidential campaign. So there's a lot of history on George Wallace that we're not going to get into for this story. But basically, George Wallace was kind of known to be a racist and so was Ray thought to be a racist. And he was quickly drawn to Wallace's segregationist platform. He spent much of his time in Los Angeles volunteering at the Wallace campaign headquarters in North Hollywood. So that's important because when he had time to review this, he wanted all that association to be deleted. He didn't want to be known as a racist. He didn't want to be known as being associated with this very bad presidential segregationist at all. Hmm. So in court, going back to 1969 here, Ray answered the standard series of questions about whether he was knowingly and voluntarily admitting he committed murder. In exchange for his plea, like we mentioned earlier, prosecutors did not seek the death penalty and Ray was sentenced to 99 years in prison. Wow. Not, so, not 100? They didn't want to round no, it out? I don't, I don't know why they do that either. That's <laughs> another good question for why they why they accept like the no death penalty for 99 years. Yeah. I'd be like, can you make it 100 or can we just call it 90? Yeah. Either way, I'm going to die there. So who cares? So officially, the case was closed at that point. Within days, however, Ray filed a motion to withdraw his plea, claiming he had been coerced by his attorney and the FBI. So everyone thought the case was closed. However, within days, Ray filed a motion to withdraw his plea. And he claimed that he had been coerced by his attorney and the FBI to basically admit to this murder. Well, I was wondering if he was set up or something like, why didn't he say something? So, okay, that's interesting. Well, and like I've been alluding to throughout the whole part of my story here is that this guy just seems kind of like a dumb criminal. What's going to unfold here as we go on is kind of what sounds more like a mastermind plot to kill a very high profile person with one shot from a distance. That okay. I mean, this guy doesn't seem capable of that, even based on what I've read. And if you dig more into his history, which we can cite the article and other things like that on social media after this episode, I think you'll start to put that together as well, that this guy was not capable of doing this without some kind of help. Like he's just the fall guy kind of thing. Well, and whether it was the government or what some believe to be the mafia or some other crime syndicate, he did not act alone when it comes to the planning and everything else. Now, some people, including the King family, believe that he didn't even pull the trigger. They have been fighting for years with other people, eyewitnesses and everyone else that believe that a Memphis police officer pulled the trigger. Hmm, And he was framed for this and set up, which to me, that would make more sense. I mean, police are trained in being able to shoot that way. Right. But how would they get his fingerprints on the rifle? Did they they just say they were on the rifle? Well, if you're framed, yeah, you can plant the rifle on him, make him touch them under coercion, all kinds of things. Hmm, Okay. Like I said, there's belief that the mafia was involved as well. So maybe he was afraid. Okay. You know, so there's a lot of factors at play here. For me, the fact that the family believes that he didn't do it and yeah, they're willing that's huge. to exonerate this guy who for years has been thought to have killed their father, but they're going to bat for him continually up until now to fight for his innocence and justice for him who's been in prison this whole time. To me, that, that says there's something more there. Right? Absolutely. Totally on board with you on that one. But like you said, there are some facts such as that he bought the rifle and his fingerprints are all over it. So that makes it a little a little hard, right? Mm-hmm. So I said that he had he had filed the uh, the motion to withdraw his plea because he was coerced. Three decades of legal machinations. Did I say that right? I don't even know that <laughs> word. 
never succeeded in reopening this case, but they revealed new details each time that led to new theories of how King might have been killed that did not involve Ray. Oh, geez. So again, just put the timeline together in your head, listeners, yeah. that he he's saying, I didn't do this. And then the case doesn't officially get reopened, but every time it gets looked at, new things come to light that point to him also not doing it. Yeah. So, I mean, this is one of those conspiracy theories that I have a feeling someday there's going to be declassified information from the government that says, yeah, by the way, he didn't do it. All the players are long dead. So, that I don't would know. Be, that would be really interesting. It would be interesting. And talk about a huge cover up, right? I mean, yeah, crazy, crazy stuff. So at the same time, all this was going on. There was uh, charges of misconduct with J. Edgar Hoover, who was in charge of the FBI at the time. And they were starting to come to light. Hoover had ordered surveillance, wiretaps, and listening devices placed in King's rooms starting in 1963. Apparently infuriated by King's criticism of the FBI for not having black agents or investigating civil rights cases. So they're starting to paint the picture that maybe the FBI had it out for MLK. Yeah. And had something to do with this. Recordings and photos of King having sex with women other than his wife were offered to reporters and government officials, often by Hoover himself. Wait, like real recordings or like? Who knows? The hey. FBI and the CIA, okay. they're capable of putting together That's a lot of I've things. I've never heard of right? before. Jeez. I haven't either. I hadn't heard of any of this. But what's telling for me is that often Hoover himself handed these to the reporters. The director of the yeah, FBI okay. doesn't do things like that. They have minions for that. Right. So there's obviously some deeper, kind of more sinister involvement there. These were also sent to King's associates. Hoover once told a group of reporters on the record that King was the most notorious liar in the country. Yikes. Coretta King and Abernathy, aware of the FBI campaign, immediately suspected FBI involvement after his death. But Ray's sudden guilty plea stopped all official investigations because he just yeah, came out all of a sudden and yeah. said, I did it. Well, obviously, like, like that would happen. But because that happened so quickly, there was no trial. There was nothing. No, yeah. He just went straight to prison and done. Like I said, case closed. When asked about the King's family suspicion, an FBI spokesman responded in a statement that the government has revisited the assassination four times. Findings from these reviews support the FBI's conclusion that James Earl Ray acted alone, fired a rifle once, fatally wounding Dr. King on April 4th, 1968 at the Lorraine Motel. And again, all the evidence is there to point to that. So why wouldn't they say that? Yeah. Plus, they're not going to come up and say, oh, yeah, you're right. We we murdered him in a cover up. I'm just wondering if his fingerprints were actually on the gun or if the investigators were like, yep, yep, that's his fingerprints. Like, I, I'm I think I'm all wondering. of that's very possible in this scenario because it's so convoluted and, and twisted. Yeah. So the owner of Jim's Grill Lloyd Jowers began claiming publicly that he was involved in a conspiracy to kill King. With the owner was? Yeah. Oh. He had consistently denied any knowledge of the case for a quarter century, but now he's alleging that a gunman was a Memphis police officer who fired from the bushes behind his grill, then handed him, Jowers, the murder weapon. Jowers stashed the rifle behind the bar and said it was later picked up by Raul and tossed in the Mississippi River. So he knows Raul too? Yes. Oh, so he claims now, but after a quarter century of denying any involvement or even knowing any of these players, now he's saying, oh, yeah, this and this happened. More Memphis witnesses began to come forward, including a former girlfriend of Jowers, who said that she saw him with the rifle shortly after the gunshot rang out and saw him break it down and place it in the bar. Wow. I mean, what are your thoughts on this? I mean, I think if the family is even like sure of this, like... 
I think it at least deserves better investigation, although I can see why back then they didn't want to investigate further. If what you're telling me is true about the FBI and everything, I mean, it would totally make sense to just. Well, it's believed that the people that would do the investigation are the ones that did the murder. So, of course, they're not going to investigate. Right. Exactly. They're not going to investigate any further. Exactly. I just want to know, like, what they did to Ray to get him to confess like that so it's believed that the fbi was giving money to the memphis mafia who probably threatened him yeah okay i mean if they really want somebody dead the government has their ways of doing it yeah but then i'm wondering once he recanted you'd think that they'd kill him then or something i don't know it's just very strange yeah that is strange because they obviously have people on the inside that could do that yeah i mean and what was it that he suddenly was like no forget this i'm not taking the fall for this right Right. So, I, yeah, just I wish there was <laughs> we could just reach into someone's head and find out what's going on. Well, a lot of people out there believe that America is entitled to know the truth. Like by now we should know the truth. So even those that believe that Ray, who he died in 1998 in prison, even those that believe that he killed King tend to think that he received assistance from someone. Like I said before, yeah, this like is he, guy's just a yeah. common criminal and he pulls off this mastermind plot. To basically, to basically snipe someone. You know, right. like, that takes planning. Whether it was his two brothers or the FBI or the mafia, nobody knows. It was somebody who helped him pull this thing off. And like I said before, because he suddenly pleaded guilty, nobody really found out any details because it was just over. There was no trial, no investigation. Yeah. The largest government investigation associated with this was led by the House Select Committee on Assassinations. I didn't even know that was a thing. Wow, yeah. Under Chief Counsel Robert Blakely, who theorized in 1979 that Ray committed the killing in the hope of collecting a $50,000 bounty offered by supporters of then-presidential candidate George Wallace. Mm. There was no definitive evidence to prove that theory. And the Wallace supporters had, were dead by 1979, so no one could even back that up or answer those questions. Right. Blakely said recently that he tried to prove conspiracy but could not. If the FBI or CIA was involved, they had destroyed all the documentation of it by 1979. So he had nothing to go on when he started looking at this and investigating it on behalf of the government. He's on record saying that he remains adamant that Ray was the gunman but likely had help. And so that seems to be the recurring theory out there because of the fingerprints is that he actually pulled the trigger, had involvement, bought the gun, but was completely set up and was part of a bigger mastermind plot. I don't believe that angle because I'm still sticking with my knowledge of guns and things like that, that this guy, I mean, I couldn't do that shot. Yeah. Most people couldn't do that shot. I like the theory of the police officer doing it because that's someone who's actually connected to this somehow that is trained to actually do that, that type of shot. Yeah. I, I keep on the side of the fact that he didn't have anything to do with this because why would the grill owner even cop to that? It's so many years later, you've already gotten past it. Like, why would you come out now and say you had involvement? What does that do for you? It doesn't do anything. Well, I think some people get like kind of fascinated with these things as they start to hear more about them and they want to be involved in a roundabout way. But that's almost like you said, incriminating himself. Yeah, it just doesn't seem like yeah, what like, would be the the benefit of that. Nothing really adds up here. So Coretta King and her family pleaded with President Bill Clinton in 98 to reinvestigate the case and bring justice to this whole thing. Um, Attorney General Janet Reno, you remember her, right? I do. Assigned Civil Rights Specialist Counsel Barry Kowalski, who previously prosecuted the Los Angeles police officers in the Rodney King beating, 
to review the newest conspiracy allegations. In 2000, even after reviewing the results of the 1999 civil trial in Memphis, Kowalski concluded that Ray was guilty and that there was no government conspiracy. Hmm. So I think what we really learned here is I'm a terrible American. I didn't know any of this, even the historical part. I just, I don't know how I missed this part of school or history. I haven't read up on it. I feel really bad about that, actually. Well, so no, I knew the part about, you know, I didn't know the why he was in Memphis, but I knew he was there for some civil rights thing. Right. Um, I knew he was shot. I knew he was shot by this guy. Mm-hmm. And like, that was it. That was a story. Yeah. There wasn't like any more to it. Uh, you know, it was always like such a sad thing. He was taken too early, which we can all agree on. Yeah. But yeah. I didn't know like any of the rest of it, that it was some possibly some huge conspiracy. Well, and quite recent as well, even in the Clinton administration, I didn't hear anything about this on the news back then and granted i was just in high school so maybe i wasn't paying attention but right to me like all the some of the other theories i've covered so far on this show have been quite outlandish about lizard people under the airport and <laughs> you know kind of unbelievable things 9-11 all that stuff but government cover-ups and the history of them when you look at jfk the whole kennedy family for god's sake i mean some of this seems very legit And we learned from the last episode that the government does lie about certain things, usually about top secret military missions and things like that. And they're not going to come out and admit that they lied about killing a high profile civil rights activist. Especially not now. Yeah. So um, I don't know. I mean, I'm I'm on the fence with this one. I tend to believe that this was a plot for sure, based on everything I read. So I'm hoping I live to see the day where this gets uh, settled. But as family members and everyone else keeps dying off and maybe it never will yeah and it's pretty sad can you imagine having this attached to your name and going to prison and dying in prison i know for anything you didn't do but something as high profile as this yeah oh my god incredible so that's my story wow that was a good one yeah yeah i love hearing new things i've never known before right it's kind of neat it is Well, if you want to see pictures and get more information on these cases, be sure to follow us on social media at How Did We Miss That? And I also want to give a big thank you for our theme composition, which goes to Audio Anywhere Productions. You can find them at audioanywhereproductions.com. See you next week. And until then, keep your head up and look out for each other. 